Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is David Bodanis. David is a father to three young men, two of which are on the autism spectrum. David and his wife Irene are the founders of Jake's House, a charitable organization based in Canada whose mission is to support individuals on the spectrum throughout their lifespans. They offer four core initiatives, annual holiday parties, the Legends Mentoring Program, employment mentoring, and inclusive housing solutions. In this conversation, David talks about the dynamic between his three sons growing up, how the understanding of autism in Canada has changed over the last 20 years, and why he and his wife decided to start Jake's House. David also describes a recent exciting project at Jake's House in which they formed the band ASD, comprised of young musicians with autism. In this episode, discover what's possible when everyone has a place to belong. For more information about David Bedanis and Jake's House, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project. And now, I present you, David Bedanis. Hi, David. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for being here today. Rachel, it's my absolute pleasure. I'm happy to be here and look forward to our chat. Could you please briefly introduce yourself? Sure. I am the lesser half of the co-founders of Jake's House Charity. 16 years ago, my wife Irene and I, basically off of the examples of raising our two sons that have autism, decided to call together all of our friends and families and basically everybody that we knew to try to put together an effort that could make a difference in the lives of individuals and their families living with autism originally in Canada, but hopefully uh, beyond those borders. Yeah. All right. So let's start with your sons. Tell us about them. What are some of their interests and how old are they now? So Irene and I have been together for 33 years. We just celebrated our 31st wedding anniversary last year. So our sons, all boys, are 29. James is our oldest son and he's neurotypical. And our next son, who is 27, Jake, is the namesake of the charity. Jake has a, a severe condition of autism in the re regards to his communication. Jake is very typical in a lot of his behaviors. He's a very calm young man. He, he's a very well-behaved young man. He simply has not been able to develop any speech. And our youngest son, Jonathan, who is 24, so 29, 27, and 24, relatively all close in age, Jonathan is an interesting uh, story in that his first seven years, he also never spoke a word. And my wife tried a number of therapies and, 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 and treatments and a number of things. And then thankfully, around the age of seven, he started to develop some speech. And his speech has developed quite a bit to the point where you can communicate with Jonathan. He does speak in an atypical fashion. You do have to use a slower pace and have some patience with him. But he's developed a sense of humor in his communication. And it's we're, we're really surprised. We were 
concerned for a long time that unfortunately, as with Jake's speech, never developed, that perhaps Jonathan would be the same, but happily he moved along. Does Jake communicate with another means like a device or sign language? I would say that his communication is dependent on his routine. So my wife has done a, an incredibly good job of adapting her lifestyle to the boys, not trying to do it the other way around. So their meals, not every day are the same, but throughout the week, there's a, a you know a kind of a structure to the way they're fed. And because the routine is so consistent, you know, Jake can follow simple instructions as to where the next meal is, what the next timing are. It really is challenging, though, to ever try to guess as to what is on Jake's mind. As we say, he can follow simple commands. Let's get dressed. We're going to go visit grandma. Let's get dressed. We're going to go for a walk. You know, and he's putting his clothes on. So it's clear he has understanding. The limits of his understanding are, are quite honestly unknown to us. My youngest son, Jonathan, has enough communication to make his um, to make his requests and his desires known to us. There is a very refreshing honesty in dealing with individuals with autism. They tend to cut out all the diplomacy and they just get right down to what it is they want. So uh, it's kind of nice. I'm hungry, feed me. Sure. It's kind of easy. So Yeah. And what kind of dynamic do the three brothers have together? So growing up, and I think this is incredibly important as to ultimately why we started the charity. As I mentioned, we have three sons and um, the boys were four, two and a newborn. So I would say within that next year or so is when all of the um, kind of the uh, conditions of the autism started to reveal themselves. And we were extremely lucky that we had the support of our oldest son. We always say from when he was four till he was 14 for those 10 years, James was the third parent in our house. And it, was, uh, it wasn't like he needed to be there 24-7, but there were times when his support and his help was critical. So the two younger brothers are very attached to their older brother. And happily, a year ago, our oldest son got married and is now off to start his own family. But you know, I would say once the boys somehow, and I don't really know why, once they were 10, 12, and 14, they settled into routines where I would just submit that there was a bit of a calmness. So the support lessened on a daily basis. It seemed, but those 10 years, I, I say, for my wife especially, and, and subsequently a little bit to myself, those 10 years as a parent felt like 30 years. And I don't know what we would have done if we didn't have James help from family. Mm -hmm. And when we started looking around, as we started getting our footing within our own household, we realized that in the autism world, it's, it's unfortunately very heavily affected with family separating. There's a lot of pressure financially. There's a lot of pressure emotionally. And moms and dads have a hard time staying together. And, and we just realized that if we had a hard time with an older child, with parents, with family, how are these parents surviving? So we put together the charity in the vein of trying to just be that extra pair of helping hands when it was needed. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk a little bit before we get into your charity and the work that you do there, just to paint a picture of what the understanding of autism is like in Canada. And you're from Toronto, correct? We are, yeah. Yeah. So maybe could you describe how the understanding has changed in Canada since your sons were diagnosed? The story I think that best relates to this is, you know, when you think in terms of long-term time spans, 
20 years ago doesn't seem like ancient history. It's not 50 or 100 years ago. And our first son, Jake, was diagnosed. We have a world-renowned hospital here in Toronto. It's the Hospital for Sick Kids. And they help parents like us. They do a two-day evaluation. This is 20 years ago. Things have changed dramatically since. But I'll take you back to the time when we were diagnosed. And you do two four-hour sessions with your son. And then they ask you to come back so that they can give you the diagnosis alone. And just to show you how much it's changed, Jake has subsequently been diagnosed with autism. His initial diagnosis was PDD, pervasive development disorder, which is, again, autism is a very wide spectrum. It would certainly be characteristics that fell within the autism range. So the the clinician talked to my wife and I and said he has PDD, it's form of autism. And of course, we had no idea, no idea what that was. We hadn't heard of it. You know, it wasn't anything that we were familiar with. So they explain it to you and you ask a lot of questions. And unfortunately, there aren't a lot of answers. He's three or four at the time. Will he be able to go to school? Don't know. Will he ever talk? Don't know. Are there therapies we can get to help him? Don't know. So I just recall that particular day walking outside with my wife standing on the corner of the hospital. And I'm, I'm sure there was hundreds of people walking around us. But at that particular moment, we felt like we were the only two people on the planet. It was a very, very hard day. You feel like the child you thought you had is gone. And so it's also something we incorporated is to try to have our charity so that any parents who are leaving any hospital don't feel like that. Thankfully, in Canada, and again, 20 years is not a long time, but I would suggest to the credit of a lot of people that the overall perception of autism has been much more supportive, that people just didn't know. When your kids were in a park, and unfortunately, I'm a fairly you know good sized person. My wife is a tall lady; she's five eleven. So our boys were always you know heads and shoulders above other children, and somewhat noticeable when their behaviors had them behind other children's and typical. So my wife was always at the park. My son wouldn't understand that there's an order to the slide. You have to let the child in front of you go because his you know his cognition wasn't there. And parents were cold. And my wife would say, he's autistic. And, you know, even at the time, as silly as it sounds, people thought she was saying artistic. And she says, well, what does, you know, he's being an artist have to do with it? And she goes, no, it's it was very, very frustrating uh, for not just my wife, but for, you know, tens of thousands of moms and dads like my wife and, and, and ourselves. But I would have to say that it's, it's very impressive that in a short period of time, in the 20 years that we've learned about it and we've watched it, it's miles different. And I'll, I'll get into this a little later on, where we find the optimism is not in our generation, but is in the generation behind us. My mom still has a hard time understanding, well, maybe they're not autistic. It's like, yes, mom, they are autistic because, you know, maybe there's always a quick fix. And it's just, it's cultural, it's generational. And I found that from our generation down, there is so much more acceptance, which leads us to an enormous amount of optimism. And that's amongst the many things that we try to do. That's what we try to share with parents who are just having young children being diagnosed. You, you know, have a family and you have somebody who's two or three years old now and, you know, they're limited. They're not going to be able to do this. No, don't think about what they can't do. Think about what they can do. Mm -hmm. So I would say that in 20 years, it's been enormous strides all in, in a good... There's always room for improvement, but uh, enormous strides towards it in a positive direction. Yeah. Is there any kind of stigma around mental health in general in Canada? I think that as with any subject, education is the key. I, I always thought that awareness was something that was 
misused or overplayed. And, and, and maybe not awareness, but maybe education. And I'll give you a good example. Jake has been volunteering at my old high school for probably five or six years now. And I remember doing an experiment. He's in a leadership class, an amazing teacher. Her name is Nadia Pasquini, and she runs all of the leadership. And Jake has been part of their class for, let's say, a couple of years now. So I went in and I talked to all of the kids who were all familiar with Jake in the school environment. And I said, you're all comfortable with Jake. I was talking to a classroom of about 30 kids. And all, again, these are individuals that want to help. So they're inclined to you know, push a little bit more. And I said, so you all feel comfortable with Jake in this school? I said, there's a gas station 15 minutes down the road. If I asked one of you to take Jake to the gas station and I'll pick him up in a half an hour, how many of you would feel comfortable? And not a hand went up. And it's because as soon as we would take him out of the familiar environment, they were like, and I said, okay, now I'm not, you know, I, I understand. Please share with me why. Well, I'd be afraid. What if he decided to bolt? I can't talk to Jake. I'm, I'm not in the environment. So what we've learned is that education, like my, I have three boys. They're all fantastic. But I can tell you far and away, the most difficult child we have is our oldest. He has ideas. <laughs> he has this. He has that. And I say that in a positive way. Jake and Jonathan are so easy to parent simply because my wife took a very positive approach of adapting to a certain degree. There's no temper tantrums allowed. There's no misbehavior. But if they'd like things structured a certain way, my wife was good enough and I think wise enough to do that. Once you become familiar with that, taking care of our boys is, is they're both angels. But if you didn't know them, Rachel, and I said to you, you can come in. Jake is six foot three and 300 pounds and doesn't say a word. So you're now looking at this very large young man. You have no idea that he needs his dinner in an hour. And it's all simple if you know it. So getting back to your original question, it's the education of trying to explain to people that once you understand and, and the challenge, as with all of us, is we're all different. So my son Jonathan's needs couldn't be more different than my son Jake's needs. But to prove my point, they're all completely different than my son James's needs. They're all different. So uh, I think as parents, it was just the acceptance of understanding that your children had different parameters. And once you found their comfort zones, and again, I there's none of this credit goes to me in our particular household. This all goes to their mom who studied and learned and, you know, took all of the basic parenting instincts and had to throw them out the window, to be honest with you, because you have to learn a whole new set of them. And she was incredible in being consistent, being firm, you know, because a child is still a child. A six-year-old is going to try to do whatever they can, autistic or not. So it was very hard for her to walk that fine line as to where does she give tolerance and where does she apply discipline or control. And I think she's done a marvelous job. And the benefit, one of the benefits of our charity is, is that my wife has gotten to talk to thousands of other parents who really have simplified parenting. And once you learn, put the child's needs first, set a basic rules of parameters. We all know our children. Yeah, it worked out pretty good. Did you guys receive any support? Were either of them getting any therapies? So at the time, we did try speech therapy and occupational therapy. Now, when you say support, at the time, there was no government support. So you paid for it. And we found some incredible people in those industries. The occupational therapist that we had for Jake and Jonathan, a, a lovely woman by the name of Paula Aquino, couldn't have been nicer. I think the challenge for therapists, and it's very difficult, is that as a parent with a newly diagnosed child, you see them as the beacon and the banner of hope. 
that while they're a speech therapist or they're occupational therapist, they're the cure. And I think what's very challenging and what we liked about Paula was that she was very practical in her expectations. That, you know, that sometimes a, a journey of six inches is just as important as one of a mile. Mm-hmm. But for Jonathan or for Jake, and maybe Jake can't even make the journey to the, the foot line, maybe Jonathan can, but Jake can't. The other thing is that the severity and the condition that the children all develop, you know, there are therapies that will help 18, 20, 25%. There are some that will help others. But I think as a parent, you always have to be careful to know that cures and, you know, magic treatments and, and you know, well, why aren't they talking? They've been in speech therapy for three years. It just might be the way that child's, you know, DNA is. So, yeah, so we did try. We were satisfied that we were, we tried to get all the resources we can back in our day. There weren't government supports. Now, today, there's many, many more, thankfully. But what we caution parents about is just measure your expectations. You know, the, the condition of your child might might not suit a certain program, but by all means, get out there as a parent, try every one you possibly can. So, you know, just keep your expectations in check. I think it's just common sense. Right. Okay. Let's talk about Jake's house. Could you give us a brief history of how the idea for the organization came about? Sure. So we, as mentioned, we had spent a solid decade plus as parents of autistic children. My wife, I would say about five minutes after Jake was diagnosed, did an incredible job of finding appropriate resources such as therapies, finding out what schools would accept him, which ones weren't, and there were far more that wouldn't accept him that would. So the picture I'm trying to paint is that she immediately reset all of the expectations for her to suit the boy's needs. I didn't. I took another path, unfortunately, and I was hoping or I was in denial that, you know, maybe the boys were going to snap out of their conditions. So I spent far, far, far too long hoping or wishing that something was going to develop and they were going to go away. My wife, Irene, was very practical in applying appropriate supports for the boys. And then when I finally awoke from my slumber, you know, and had a chance to look back at what those 10 or 12 years were like, the combination of understanding how hard it is for parents and, uh, you know, to be quite honest, the frustration of not being able to help our own children further you, you do sometimes reach a limit and not so much a limit that they can't learn more tomorrow or the next day, but you start to frame that this is probably the extremes as to where the children are going to develop in terms of their you know abilities to communicate. That my boys will always be defined as at-risk children. Neither of them should be left alone for more than five or 10 minutes. So it was a kind of a sobering issue and I had a deep regret for the way I had ignored the prior five or six years, I felt guilt that I had somewhat abandoned my wife in her, um, not not physically, I didn't go anywhere, but just that mentally I, I wasn't as supportive as I probably should have been. So then we, you know, of course, uh, a number of my friends had, had, and had some successes and said, well, then let's start to tackle this and let's try to do this. So the very first event we ever had as a charity was our holiday party. And um, I, I like to be sensitive about this because it, it, it arose out of a, a bit of a negative uh, circumstance. Not that, you know, it's ill-intended, but one year we were invited to a family Christmas party, 20 or so nieces and nephews running around waiting for Santa Claus to come. And of course, my boys who are quite young at that point 
don't understand the concept of Santa Claus. They they're just they're they are very hard to control. Well, lo and behold, next Christmas, no invitation to that party. So to every parent's story, this is when the isolation begins. So my wife, I had mentioned to her that I thought starting a charity and raising money to help support different autism causes was a good thing. And she's like, well, can we throw a holiday party as part of the charity? And I'm like, sure. So I think my wife and I funded the first five or six or seven holiday parties until they really started to get really big, then we needed help. But the the construct of the first holiday party was our two boys, well, our three boys, but our two autistic boys, and 21 other children that had autism and their brothers and sisters and their moms and dads. We knew some local counselors. A really, really nice man had just retired as the chief of police in Toronto. His name is David Boothby. So the chief was our first, uh, he was actually our second chairman, uh, but as our as chairman, he was our Santa Claus for three years. <laughs> and the premise of the party was really simple. We rented a local hall. We built a stage. My wife called each of the 21 moms and dads and said, you know, can we get something small? And so she did. And, um, you know, we brought in jumping castles and balloons. And the key to everything we do is volunteers. So I promise you, if we had 100 people there, we probably had 50 or 60 volunteers there. And that was the key. Mm-hmm. So the party went off. There were some things we didn't do so right, some things we did well, and then we corrected it. So the next year, just on an email list, 23 children became 51 children and about 200 people. And the phone number to Jake's house here in Canada, it's 416-247-JAKE, 24752-53. And that phone used to go right into our house. So when the parents wanted, long before emails became you know very familiar and common, my wife would pick up the phone. Hi, Jake's house. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel, and I have a son. I'm like, great. Now, you have a son who has autism. Does he have any other? Oh, yes, but they don't have. That's okay. How old is your son's sister? And she's six. So the rule became everybody with autism. So we run now from two years old to 72 years old at our last party, and all brothers and sisters under 12 get presents. Because how do you tell an eight-year-old typical child, you're going to a party, but your brother or sister got a present, but you don't? Yeah. (laughs) So last year at our Toronto party, we had 700 individuals and children. Yeah. So it went 21, 51, 109, 200. Last year, we had over 700 individuals with autism, over 2,000 people. And as tradition is, and I don't know how she does this, my wife still goes out and buys. She has volunteers help her buy all the presents, and she wraps all the presents. So oh. it's crazy. So, and then we did a similar party. The capital of Canada is a city called Ottawa. And we did a second party, slightly smaller. It was about 500 people. But I think my wife wrapped about 1,200 gifts and she signs them all. And at the event, she gives them all out personally. But just to show you how the volunteers grew, from that first volunteer party of about 50, we had well over 300 volunteers at our Toronto party for the kids. So, The holiday party and the just trying to build a community and get to know each other is how we started. And then where we went from them is a program we've now developed that is supported by our province, which we call our Legends Mentoring Program. And it was essentially, we saw the benefit of having all the volunteers help a parent just check their coat or tell a parent, I'll watch Jake for the next 15 minutes. You go have a slice of pizza and just breathe for 20 minutes. And I'm right over here and I've got it. It was incredibly helpful. So my wife said, if we're going to do it once a year, let's do it once a week. So we started putting together a program. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. My wife doesn't say a lot, 
but when she talks, we're smart enough to all listen. So, and we, 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 so we have a whole yeah. team of 18 people that put all of her ideas into play. And when we start going a little bit too far left or too far right, she just course corrects us. So the Legends Mentoring Program was the next program. It was very successful in getting more volunteers. So now 300 became 3,000 volunteers. And, and how do we connect them in various regions? And how do we create programming? Of course, since COVID, we've turned all those programs online. So we do cooking courses online. We do uh, athletics online with all of our various partners. We've started a dance program online. Just anything to keep kids active and, and interaction. And each of them has a volunteer presence. So again, from the holiday parties where we kind of meet you for the first time to our mentoring program, very much mirroring my sons as they grew, my wife's like, you have to start an employment program. So very happy and very proud. I just found out today a few more of our, our Jake's House family members were taken on by companies. Corporate Canada has been fantastic. You know, we have a, a company that's a global organization called Specialisterna. They were started in Europe. The uh, Canadian CEO and I met three or four years ago. And I said, listen, we'll try to support everything we can do to you know, get meaningful employment. Because again, the autism spectrum is very wide. Yeah. So yes, my son Jake is very limited in what he can do, but yet five days a week, he finds meaningful work in a school. He shreds paper, he can index books, because even though he can't talk, he has the ability to index books in a library. They continue to find more uses, more uses as he becomes more of that community. So employment was the next kind of pillar. So yeah, could I just ask a little bit about that? Sure. So how does that work exactly? Are you training the individuals with autism with some specific skills? And then how do you connect with the companies? What's that process like? The success of our charity and the success of anything in this world is partnerships. So the partner that we have in our employment program is that company, Specialisterna. So the reason we kind of reached out to them is because I would get emails every once in a while would say, Royal Bank of Canada looking to hire, we're looking for candidates. So, and then, you know, a month later I would get Google is looking to hire and I'm like, wow, these are big companies. And it's specifically just for those with autism. So we connected and they have the Canadian franchise of a global initiative. And it's very similar. The family that started Specialisterna, I think it's in Denmark and I really want to be accurate. So I'd, I'd hate to be wrong on that, but I believe it's a family in Denmark that started it. Their goal was to place a million individuals on the spectrums around the world. And then they started franchising the idea out. Uh, the gentleman, Alan Chris, is the CEO of Canada, and we deal with Alan and his amazing team. So we've built a team that supports their team. So if it's funding or anything we can contribute with, but essentially they're the ones who find the, um, the companies that are looking. And, it's, and there is a, to your point about culture shifts, there is a strong push to be inclusive in hiring to hire individuals all across neurodiverse issues, not just autism, but in other fields as well. So it, it's an inviting environment. Even today in the world of COVID, we've, I'm happy to find out we just, we made placements today. So, which, you know, in a world where jobs are being lost, I said, maybe there's opportunities, people rehire, they might get a chance to, you know, incorporate others with special needs. So it's the partnership where we would not profess to have the specialties that Specialist Erna has in that particular field. And we do it in everything else. We have another incredible housing partner, but I'll, I'll save that till we get to there. Okay. Just to follow up on the volunteer program, could you break down how that works? Like, is it one volunteer that's assigned to a family and are they only working together for that one particular event? 
What's that process? So I don't want to take us too far into the details, but each event has a time frame. So in other words, originally we were trying to follow a big brothers, big sisters model where commitments are quite substantial. They're for one year. So what we did is we, we experimented with that for a while, and then we found possibly more success in shortening the programs. So we run 10 to 12-week programs in the various fields that I talked to you about. And then once they're finished, they restart. So it's a little easier to engage. And what and you're absolutely correct. Prior to COVID, if there were 15 you know, individuals showing up for a painting class, they would be assigned to 15 volunteers. And the volunteers would show up. They would be supportive. Now online, we tend to use less volunteers because quite frankly, it's just you don't quite need as many volunteers. But looking ahead a little bit and knowing that COVID will be something of the past, April 2nd of this year, 2021, we're looking to start a very, very aggressive volunteer campaign. And we found, in my opinion, the best partner for the charity that we could ever find in an organization called U-Sports. And what U-Sports is, is it's the collection of 53 or 56, the number escapes me, 53 or 56 universities right across Canada. And Canada is basically divided into four parts. There's the East, the West, the Middle, and kind of Quebec and Ontario. Each kind of division has a chapter lead. Um, and there's 1 million students if you go over the collective enrollment. So we are going to create a campaign and marketing to engage in different levels of fashion because it's not practical. We don't have a million individuals with autism, but we are going to try to engage as many of those students as we can in a campaign that you know has them reaching out to those with autism in their local communities. So we always partner with the local university in Toronto, the University of Toronto, comes on board, you start talking to them, and all your autism support goes through there. Uh, it's similar to other places around the country. So the volunteer core is the key because it's the unpaid labor staff. If we had to pay 3,000 volunteers, we could never afford it. Now, keeping them motivated is, is a challenge. Keeping them focused, giving them something that they can truly make a difference is something that we spend an awful lot of time on. But we're finding that the university level individual is very, very receptive to giving of themselves. We're very, very uh, optimistic. And, and again, Rachel, not to make it personal, but you know, my sons, Jake and Jonathan, other than their autism, will probably live very long and otherwise healthy lives. It's the generation behind me that's going to be taking care of our children. So our entire staff here is very relatively young. Our leader is very young, but she's extremely passionate, incredibly qualified, and motivates people even younger than her to help. So this is where people like myself, my wife, are, are so encouraged. Because the first question you have when the boys are two, four, and six is, if we're dead, you know, James is seven or eight years old at that time. My mom is in her late 70s at that time. Who's going to take care of our kids? It's a chilling question that a lot of parents go through. So if we can somehow light the fire across Canada where you've got a million brothers and sisters looking out for their, you know, their autistic friends, even if just their education is just, if we can just educate them just that little bit more so they're not afraid if they see somebody at the gas station, if you know what I mean. So the volunteers are the lifeblood of our entire charity. There's no question about it. Mm -hmm. So your sons live with you, right? Yeah, the two that have autism live with us, yes. Okay, so maybe this is a good segue to talk about the housing initiative that you guys have too. Okay, yep. What services are available for adults in Canada? 
as far as like group homes or residential facilities? Or So in our research, we've always had the mind that because we've been very fortunate to have gathered the interest of a lot of people, a lot of corporate, and we, we say this, we're incredibly humble and grateful that we have it. So we don't say it as a boast. We say it as, thank God they're there. We've always approached everything we've done as go find the leader in this case, housing, and let's put all of our support behind that group. So we, we, do, we do push far and wide before we make an initiative not to replicate something because there would be no sense in replicating. You know, it just, it just wouldn't make sense. So if there was somebody out there, and the only answer I can give you is there are organizations that have built smaller units, four to six, you know, residences, uh, take a home and retrofit it for four to six individuals and maybe have, you know, 15 or 20 of those. There are a couple of organizations that have built slightly larger kind of 50 units, something that would look more like a traditional nursing home or something. There wasn't anybody that put the proposal to the government that we did. We put there currently Jake's house. And again, our housing partner is an incredibly generous group of individuals. Greg Zare and David Marshall have combined in their company, Marshall Zare, and they have a fantastic team. And the only reason Jake's House was able to acquire its first residence, which is a 54-unit building, which we are tailoring solely towards the autism community. I just, I just want to say this one caveat is this was a retirement home. So in this particular building, there are still a number of retirees that exist in the home. It's always going to be their home as long as they want. That particular site, we can double from 54 units to roughly 110. And what we will start doing is moving in perhaps a single mom who's in her 60s with a 30-year-old autistic son. There are individuals that are mildly affected that can live on their own but need some support. We will have single unit suites, but this is not a building that you would be moving on. We call them Jake's House Community Residences. You will not be moving in there and you get your key and then it's like, good luck. It's monitored 24-7. There are nurses. It's not like you're walking into a, a condo where you have the, you know, the concierge at the front door. And I just want to use my words carefully because we're trying not to be identified in one thing, but this is almost like you're walking into a, a hospital grade support system. But it doesn't feel like that. It feels like your home. So we have four properties in a relatively confined space in terms of the country. Our province is a big province. And we've given a proposal to our government for 15 properties. And again, does Jake's House have the expertise or the skill set to find those properties? No. Does Jake's House have the skill set to fund those properties? No. So this is why when we find an organization like Marshall Zare and Greg and David and Cecil and Murray and their entire team, and how they are literally trying to change the culture in this country. They're saying that there's 30,000 individuals on wait lists for home here. I don't know if that's a big number. I don't know if that's a small number, but that's a lot of people. So, you know, and, and it's not going to work respectfully four or six at a time. Now, you know, so we've always want to be careful that the buildings that we create have a diverse, there has to be diversity in it. You wouldn't want 99 other Rachels or 99 other Davids in one building. It would drive everybody crazy if we all looked alike and we're all so, <laughs> as with everything else within the culture of community, as nice as you are, Rachel, I wouldn't want, I wouldn't be against 99 <laughs> other Rachels, but I think you get my point. You need to have a diversity within your own community. And because we have multiple buildings, 
all of the fundamental features like the mentoring program and the employment can be driven out of the buildings. So we tried to be as efficient as possible with our model that don't create something that's going to create two lanes. We wanted to have everything housed within one. And in this particular case, it works out tremendously well. And whenever we get lost or confused, uh, we just do whatever Irene tells us to do. So because she tends <laughs> to figure out why, why we're making mistakes. And it always comes back to Rachel. Just because everybody's like, what are we going to do? What are we? What? There was like so much discussion. She slowed everybody down. She said, can I tell you what they want? They want a home. Mm. She goes, just build them a home. And as simple as that sounds, that's what we did. So because everybody was trying to, should we make all circles, no squares, no left angles? She's like, you guys are overthinking this. She goes, just give them a home where they feel welcomed and safe. And that's it. Like 30 seconds. And we're like, why didn't we figure this out? So a bunch of architects and everybody else can go back to the buildings. And we're very excited about that. And again, and I say this openly, we don't want to be the leader in housing. We want to provide really good communities. But we could use 10 more Jake's houses out there because a lot of people need help. So we're inviting more people to try to, you know, and then we'll give them the blueprints. We'll give you the plans. We're here to help. So as long as your effort is honest, we'll back you as much as we back our own. Because we're all trying to help the same families, you know. And, and mm-hmm. many of the organizations realize that. Some, unfortunately, don't because everybody has differing views. So we don't comment on any other organization's philosophies or theories. We just kind of stick to what we do. Mm-hmm. But this is such an important project because, you know, home obviously is where people feel safe and comfortable. Yeah. And you want to start from there so that they can then develop more independence and more autonomy, more agency to just live their lives to the best quality that they can. I couldn't tell you honestly what my son Jake thinks. I look at him every day. He's a puzzle. But the sense I get is, like all of us, he likes to be grounded. There is something that is his foundation. And then once the foundation is set, he works from there. If you remove the foundation, I find, at least with our two boys, I'm I'm by no means an autism expert, with our two boys, and this is why my wife is the hero, for 29 years, she has made sure that their lives are stable. I can count on less than, you know, one hand, the days that my wife wasn't there for the boys. And it sounds like, well, okay, well, just just give them meals and just do this. You do that 29 years in a row. It's like, I I don't know how many, it's like 11,000 days without a day off. And their foundation is her stability. This is what we're trying to emulate in the homes. So my wife has, has illustrated that the different times of the day, that the home must show that we're in morning, we're in afternoon, we're in evening. It's important that the calculation of time or some measurement of reference, they seem like small things. Right to you and I, maybe we're doing them subconsciously. Like maybe you're looking at your clock, going, "We've been on the phone for 49 minutes," and you know we're always measuring against something else. It's the same from all we can understand with our boys. They do have a north star, and whatever the north star is, it's the foundation, and then everything else seems to be built from there. You move the north star, you call supper instead of dinner. You know, my son Jonathan is all the way. I'm like, "Come get your supper." He goes, "It's called dinner." Okay. So if it's dinner and it's not supper, you know, but what do I know? So the home has to be the beacon of your foundation. First of all, you're safe without feeling like you're in a prison and you can do that. You you don't have to smother your children, but to to keep their security is top notch. Just a very, very simple example. We do have hot summers here in Toronto, despite what might some people might think of Canada. And putting a pool in the backyard is everybody's dream. 
it's something that we're still to this day. We feel like we can communicate to Jake that, you know, going into that pool without mom or dad is not good, but we're still not a hundred percent sure. And we're still slightly afraid that if we put that pool in there, God forbid one day, you know, we might not be there and might find him in it. But again, every parent worries about their child forever and a day. We're no different. We just worry about different things. So that's the way I always say. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, David, I'd like to talk about a more recent project that Jake's house has put together, which is the ASD band. Okay. So the one challenge in having thousands of voices listening to your charity is that you'd like to give them every once in a while a single message to follow. So beyond the 50 or 100 people that are working with our charity on a day-to-day basis, there's literally thousands of people that we want to always feel like they're part of our family. So we came up with a campaign about a year and a half ago, and I'm quite old, but I always look for music to connect all of us. And I you know, looked around at a lot of songs, and I loved the Super Tramp song, give a little bit. It just, it just for us. And, and we did, we just, we wanted to send a message to all of our volunteers that look, if you just give a little bit, and it really is true, Rachel, the one hour or the 20 minutes or whatever our son James did when he was four to 14, because he wasn't there 24 seven, he just wasn't right. And that's not a knock. He's a little kid himself. He wants to go out. But when he was required to be there, he was. So taking that message and saying, look, if you just give a little bit, it makes a massive difference. So my wife's like, well, what are you going to do? I'm like, I'm going to phone the guy who wrote the song and ask him if he'll come and sing it. <laughs> She's like, he's not going to come and sing it. I'm like, well, just, we'll try. So I think about 100 emails and about five phone calls and three no's. We got in contact with Roger Hodson, who sings the song. So very nice man. He's not with Supertramp anymore, but he still tours and sings that song. So he's a, he's a little bit older than I am, but he's so busy, like to, just to find the gap to come up. And he was available around April 2nd, which is World Autism Awareness Day. So I'm like, okay, we're not going to pass this up. So getting to how ASD started, we don't know how to film these things. We, we wanted to, we, if we're going to ask a world-class talent to give or donate a song, we need to have it shot by world-class people. And I'm very, very lucky, again, and, and my network of friends, a really, really a brilliant guy, but an even better person is this nice fellow named Andrew Simon. And I had known Andrew for, I think the first email we ever had was 12 years ago, which seems impossible. But, you know, he's, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I kind of got Roger Hodson to come up to Toronto and sing, give a little bit. He's like, really? I'm like, yeah. So he's like, okay, he says, here's what we're going to do. And I'm like, Andrew, I'm like, it's really tough. I'm like, there's, you know, the man's very busy and, you know, and we, we did it with an orchestra. So, cause I wanted it to be, so the Toronto symphony is, uh, we got 39 people from the Toronto symphony, whatever. So he's like, let's include those with autism. It won't matter unless we include those with autism. I'm like, Andrew, I'm like, it's going to be impossible. It's really hard. Like they're, they're obviously gentle and beautiful souls, but one of their key characteristics is unpredictability. So we're going to fill the stadium with 3000 people prior to COVID, obviously in any event. So Roger came up, we had the orchestra and the afternoon rehearsal is when you actually shoot the song. So I learned something that day is like, we, we have a recording, it's online, it's a really professionally done recording and it's beautiful. So you shoot the recording of it during the day and then you just sync the video at night because with an audience, sometimes I guess people you know yell at the wrong time so you can't rely on the audio. So anyway, we're in the afternoon and the original members of ASD on that day, didn't know each other. 
And our CEO, Jennifer, had brought in Rowan, Andrew, through one of his very close work colleagues, a new guitar player slash drummer, Spencer. So each of us found, I knew the piano player, Ronnie. I've known Ronnie for 12 years. And the idea was we'd record the song. And then the next day, Andrew would go into their homes. They would put on headsets. They would listen to the song and they would play along or they would sing along. That was the original plan. And to show the connection, we would ask Roger if he wouldn't mind if they all came on the stage and maybe they did a group shot or a hug, right? We, we didn't entertain even for a second that they would play mm-hmm. because the man flies in the night before, you've got an orchestra, you've got not one, not two, four individuals with autism. So anyway, we're in the afternoon and they've gone through the whole set and then I'm sitting by myself in the seats and I hear his manager say, where are the kids? So we had the kids in the Sony Center. They did have their instruments. And so now I'm watching all the kids come up on stage and I'm sweating. I'm like, oh my God, what's going to happen, right? So Roger turns to the orchestra leader, the best name in the world, Jeff Christmas. And I kid you not, his mother's name is Mary. Merry Christmas. How do you not have the time of your life, right? So Roger turns to the orchestra leader um, and he's like, let's give this a shot. So they do it, and I'm watching the kids play. I cannot stop. I have tears pouring down my face. And um, I'm like, well, at least we've got them in the afternoon rehearsal. So they finish up, and Roger, he's a very, very gentle man. He's very soft-spoken. He's very sweet. But he's very, like, his music is his soul. So if he's sharing a song, he's sharing his soul. And um, he says, I think we should try this live tonight. So everybody freezes. I'm petrified. I'm so nervous. So anyway, it was the idea was he was going to do a uh, a mini concert, seven or eight of their more fit, popular songs, and then we were going to end with give a little bit with the kids. Brought the house down. The house was packed. Everybody went crazy. That is the longest segue to explain to you how ASD was born. Mm. So we we had the greatest success. We raised a, a good amount of money off of that campaign. We raised a lot of volunteers, and then COVID hit. So the idea was to take the entertainers, the Rowan, Ron, Spencer, Jackson, Ronnie, the five musicians, and take them to a, you know, a club in Toronto with six or 700 people and let them do the song we ended up choosing was I've Got You, Babe, Sonny and Cher's song I've got, we've done since Ain't No Mountain High Enough, and we did uh, Shawn Mendes' Stitches. So there's all versions of those on YouTube. They're all fantastic. But with COVID hitting, we had to cancel the, the six or 700 people. So we encapsulated it. And again, Andrew Simon is the manager of the band. It's nobody gets paid, just to be clear. This is an all volunteer thing. So he coordinates and orchestrates the songs and the videos and all that kind of stuff by bringing in some of the best professionals. I think you found us through an article through NPR. And even the NPR article was amazed at, well, how does this Jake's house get all of these? And the, the truth is, Jake's house doesn't get it. The friends of Jake's house are the power. You're the power, Rachel, right? So now that you're part of the Jake's house family, you're the power for us. So Andrew was able to bring on an incredible array of engineers and audio musicians. And if we had a piece missing, he'd find a studio musician. And then all of a sudden it just hit. And because the power of music and then where it really started to become something with a lot of inertia is that Edelman is a global company. And Edelman has offices all around the world. So they started inviting in videos from other parts of the world. And the video that we have up on our website 
includes individuals from 11 different countries. Now it's not noted because Andrew just, he has a, you know, he has his own timing on how he likes to have things go out. So it's really powerful from the fact that anybody can join that band, even individuals who can't talk. We have videos of them clapping, but everybody loves music. My boys love music. They listen to music nonstop. And I'm so fascinated as to their music styles. They go from 80s to, you know, and they'll play Christmas songs in the middle of summer. So who cares? You know, it doesn't necessarily have to have a rhyme or reason, but music doesn't have a rhyme or reason. Mm -hmm. So ASD as we view it is the one way that we have to keep literally thousands of people, no borders, anywhere in the world. It's the one universal language, ironically, for people who have trouble with language, that kind of says we can all unite in this. And then, of course, what we do is we use some of them where we think we can highlight a program. Like if something comes up that's relevant to our volunteer program, we'll try to find an appropriate song or a group. So I'll never be able to thank Roger Hodson and Super Champ enough. I'm sorry I emailed them 117 times. I'm sorry <laughs> I called them five times. And they always had legitimate reasons when they told me no. Like they wouldn't just say no. They'd say, listen, I'm sorry, but we're, we're doing three months in Germany. I'm like, oh, okay, well, fair enough. Or we've licensed that song to a much bigger organ. And okay, fair enough. But I, I give them so much thanks and credit that they found the smallest window possible and helped us move that on. And we wouldn't have found our band if it wasn't for them. And now where we go from there, there's no limit. And I mean, the talent, Rachel, like, I mean, I don't know if you've heard it, but I think- Yeah, some, I saw the videos and it's really impressive. It's like, we're, I'm watching it and I'm like, because even myself, I'm like, oh my God, I don't know what the abilities of these children are and I hope that it goes okay. And then I listen to them, I'm like, oh my God, these kids are great. So yeah, uh, yeah. so it was really, it was surprising. And it's, again, I hope it encourages parents to don't worry about what your kids can't do. Just focus on what they can do. And, and um, yeah, it's been really fantastic. Yeah. It's so nice. The parents are all, you know, obviously as proud as they can be about their children. Because really the story now is the Jake's House story doesn't matter anymore. It's the, it's the families who have taken over the Jake's House narrative. So it's our families who tell us, you know, this is what we want to do. This is where we want. And we listen as best we can. And as often as we can, we try to follow what makes sense. So we do get some unusual requests. But, uh, you know, you just use the best judgment you can. Yeah. Well, hopefully once COVID dies down and people are free to go to concerts again, I hope ASD can put on a show for like an international tour or something where a lot of different people can get access to see them play. The question, Rachel, is do you sing or do you play an instrument, Rachel? This is the question. <laughs> because we could always use another backup singer or another one or do you have any musical talents rachel because you know it's all about growing the family rachel i actually play piano yeah you play piano all right i play piano but my husband's the musician oh he's a professional guitarist actually so see there you go he's the one yeah. Well, I'd love to get connected with your husband and get his professional opinion on the ASD band or maybe get some material. You know, mm -hmm. I, I think that everybody's missing it. Back in high school, I played French horn and I just can't get them to feature a song with French horn on it. I think that's on purpose. I think they're trying to keep me far away from the <laughs> So, yeah. So French horn is not your most popular instrument, but, you know, every song needs a French horn. So, anyway. Right. Uh, yeah. It just adds some character. You exactly. Know. Okay, David, I'd like to close with one last question. Sure. So as a father to young men with autism, what advice would you give to other parents whose children with autism are now adults? Um, that's a good question. I think 
I think the onset, and I wish it weren't the case, but I think the onset, at least it was for me. Uh, I'll tell you a, a, a silly story. Back when I was younger, I liked to golf. And uh, golf is, I'm not a good golfer, but I like to golf. And you would always hear back when I was younger, what's the perfect foursome? And some people would say the Pope and Michael Jordan and, uh, you know, somebody else is my perfect foursome. And it was just the idea of if you had to spend four or five or six hours with three other individuals, who would you like to spend that with? And I do recall very consciously after leaving the hospital when my last son, Jonathan, was born, that I had my perfect force. I was driving home from the hospital. We forgot a diaper bag or something. And, um, you know, I remember saying I was looking down the road 20 years to me and my three sons out on a golf course. That was my perfect force. And ridiculous as it sounds, um, I remember that standing on that hospital corner, and this really sounds stupid looking back, but um, one of the things I thought about when I realized how severe Jake's condition one was, there goes my foursome. I've lost my dream. So what I'm trying to tell parents is, I guess in a variety of ways, um, that diagnosis sometimes brings a loss of hope. Mine was a silly thing about having a foursome, but it's all just whatever you envision your hope to be. And I think now, looking back, I regret that I felt that way. Um, I guess a lot of people feel that way. But my, my advice, if, if I were to give any, is never lose hope. You can't. Uh, my wife did not, never took that uh, approach. Her approach was always, um, let's just focus on positives. And okay, well, if they can't golf, you know, maybe we'll all sing together. And it wasn't quite what you thought it was going to be, uh, but it can be just as fulfilling as what you wanted it to be. And that is true. And I can say that with full sincerity. I still worry about my sons. Um, you know, Jake, especially, he can't talk. Um, so, uh, you know, as we all get older, we get aches and pains. So how does he wake up if he has back pain, which, you know, I unfortunately get more often than I ever did when I was younger. How does he articulate something that simple? Will he live with that back pain and nobody will ever know? Um, there's a million different ways you can drive yourself crazy with what ifs. And I would submit that try to spend as little time as possible on those things and do what my wife did. Find people that are supportive, find solutions, you know, don't worry as to whether you know, what society measures as a success. I think I shared with you, Rachel, that my one son, it took him months and months to learn how to tie his shoes. But when he eventually reached that milestone, it was a big milestone. So, you know, and for other individuals, it seems like something you can learn when you're four. So yeah, to parents, I would just say you will have some dark moments. You will think bad thoughts. Try to get them out of your head as fast as possible. Because I, the one thing I can promise you is that you know, the, the greatest benefit to my wife and I, and I say this with all honesty, um, we are far more the benefactors of charity than we are the givers of it. There are so many nice people that give of their time and they don't have children like ours. So we're obviously doing things because we're personally affected. I meet people every day that are just saying, I want to help just because I think it's a good thing to do. There are angels everywhere. And as much as there are some negative things and as much as you will, you know, hit some walls, there's far more. It's it just so much the good so far outweighs the bad. Uh, you just have to find it. So force yourself to get out of your comfort zone, which is literally what I did when we started the charity. I did not want to talk about this for years. 
I didn't pretend that this didn't even exist for years. I probably talk about it too much now, but um, the whole point is try to be optimistic. Try to find the good because you will find it. And there's, look, there's, they don't put good things on the news enough. They put bad things on the news and we're all inundated with bad things, bad things, bad things. When you are as lucky as we are to be involved with a charity like this, all we see all day long is our act of kindness. I mean, we're so spoiled in watching others and motivates us to work even harder because again, you'll find a mom, single mom, five children, three of them have autism. And you're like, oh my God, how does that mom even get up out of bed in the morning? You know, Irene will be going through the Christmas list and she'll be like, Dave, um, you know, this, listen to this. She goes, 37-year-old mom, 7-year-old son, autism, 5-year-old daughter, autism, 3-year-old son, autism, and blind. And I'm like, you know, it's so it's, and, and, and again, when you meet those parents, they are the most optimistic parents because they have to be, you know, and it is tough. Marriages are strained. So what? Fight through it, right? Your children have to be the first priority. Just it's, it's easy to find reasons to have things go wrong. It is hard to, to work it out, but you know, more and more and more, and really that's what we hope the goal of our charities. We hope we can build uh, volunteers in the hundreds of thousands, not just here in Canada, everywhere around the world. And again, we're sitting on opposite sides of the world right now. We're communicating. You might as well be in the building next door to me. So, it, you know, there's, again, COVID has been a terrible thing, but it's also shown us that you rethink about how you can communicate with people. Well, Thank you for sharing your work with us, David. And My pleasure. Please continue to build your community and empower others around you. It's really, really inspiring. Thank you, Rachel. And we will be coming back to you and your husband for your musical talent. So uh, <laughs> keep watching those emails for us. <laughs> How can people learn more about Jake's House? Do you guys have a social media handle that you can share? The best would be just to go to our website, jakeshouse.ca, because we're in Canada. So jakeshouse.ca and all of our Instagram, all of our social media handles are on there. You can link into our band there. So the best thing is always just to go right to the website. Okay. I'll post a link to that in our show notes. All right, David. Thank you. Thanks, Rachel. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. Many families with autism feel isolated because their children are left out of social gatherings. This can happen for a variety of reasons. Some autistic children don't feel comfortable at parties due to sensory overload, and they may have meltdowns when in unpredictable environments. Some parents refrain from taking their kids outside of the house to avoid feeling judged, embarrassed, or ashamed. Some hosts of parties may feel awkward because they don't know how to treat autistic children, so they just avoid the invitation altogether. Oftentimes, families with autism are left feeling alone and desperate precisely at these moments when they yearn for a sense of belonging. David and his wife Irene have created a safe place for families to feel welcomed and empowered. Parents can feel that they are part of a community that cares about them and their children. If you know a parent of a child with autism, when was the last time you reached out to check on them? Sometimes just a quick hello to let them know you're there for them can go a long way. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. 
By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.